You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Heart and Earnestness. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. Before we start the show, I want to say thank you to everyone who contributed to the Back to the Light GoFundMe campaign, which is now closed. Your support means the world to me and everyone involved in the operation. I'll have more on that at the break. My guest this week is the musician, filmmaker, and podcast host Christian Walker. You know him from punk rock bands like Bury the Living and Pez, which I was also a member of. He creates short films and more under the name Best Revenge Pictures, which you can dial up at bestrevengepictures.com. He also co-hosts the really fun podcast Tourer Stories, which I have been a guest on. That's Tourer, T-O-U-R-R-O-R, Stories. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. For real, it was really neat to turn the tables and interview him this time. Here's me and Christian Walker. All right, let's try this again. Christian, thanks for joining me on the show. Man, thank you for having me again. (laughs) Sorry about the last time. It's all good. It's all good. So, yeah, like we tried to start it this way last time. Tell me, where am I speaking to you from? Uh, I'm in Baton Rouge right now. I am uh, production designing a children's television show uh called ziggy's arts adventures uh it's with it's with puppets so uh yeah i'm in baton rouge i've been here like a week and a half i'll be here another month um you know so i'm like building the sets and dealing with the props and uh and all this stuff you know basically everything that has to do with the look of it uh so yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm working on right now is this a new show or is this or is this just a new gig for you? Uh, it's a new gig. It's a new show and a new gig for me. Uh, the guy who started it, he's been trying to get it off the ground for years and he was kind of doing it DIY. And then um, he struck a deal with Louisiana Public Broadcasting to produce the show. Um, so we're going to do uh, in a couple of weeks, we're shooting nine episodes. And, uh, yeah, so it's going to be a new show. I mean, I guess it's, you know, just going to be playing in Louisiana, but, um, but there'll be like an online, uh, version as well. And the show is about, um, you know how on like, I guess it was in the seventies where they sent the Voyager out there and they put the gold record on it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, there's like a, there's some Chuck Berry on that record. (laughs) And so the whole show is about like a little alien who finds that record and hears Chuck Berry and comes to earth to try to find Chuck Berry. And he ends up befriending a group of kids that, uh, live and hang out in a junkyard and have a band. And then the little alien like learns about art. (laughs) Wow. That sounds really neat, actually. Uh, it's man, I'm. I'm really stoked. Like I can't, sometimes I'm like, I can't believe this is my job. So I'm having a blast. Is this your first time working on a project like this? I know you've, you've worked on other like TV 
you know, not your own projects before. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is my first time. It's not my first, uh, job as a production designer, but definitely my first time to do, uh, something on a, uh, with a, for a kid's show. Um, I do a lot of different jobs in the film industry. Um, I do special effects. Uh, I do, um, construction. I'll do, you know, I just had to learn how to do a lot of different things just to be able to keep working. Um, so this is sort of, uh, I, the guy who started the show, I worked for him, uh, like six years ago, uh, production designing a, uh, music video that he directed and he liked working with me and, and called me up. And so I've been like living in an Airstream trailer down here and, and, uh, having a blast. I've got a bunch of questions here about your work as a director and a writer with your company, Best Revenge Pictures. But before I get to that, I'm just sort of curious. I mean, if you don't mind just sharing some of the projects that you've worked on that maybe listeners might have heard of, whether it's in Memphis or beyond. Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, I just before this, I was in Greenwood, Mississippi, uh, working special effects on an ABC miniseries. I don't know when it comes out, but it is called Women of the Movement, and it is uh, every season they cover a different woman in the civil rights movement. So the season that we worked on, uh, we shot in Greenwood, and it's about Emmett Till and his mother, and um, you know what you know her sort of work in the in the civil rights movement, and so that should be coming out pretty soon. Yeah, I was special effects department on that, and that was a really cool project to work on. Um, and, you know, because it felt important. And um, so I, I'm excited for that to come out. But, like, um, you know, before that, I, I was production designer on a feature in that shot in Memphis called Jasser, uh, starring Lorraine Bracco from The Sopranos. I don't know when that's coming out. Um, I work on Hallmark movies sometimes. I'm, I do this. I work on the Snow Crew of the, these cheesy like Hallmark Christmas movies, like uh, Christmas at Graceland and uh, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, man, I'm just uh, I'm I'm always working on something. What does working in special effects on a project like that that ABC thing? What what does that entail? Um, so, you know, one of the, one of the hard days on that project and was, um, you know, they, they recreated the, you know, they shot the scene where, uh, they find Emmett Till's body. And so, you know, when they did, when they found Emmett Till, um, you know, they just, his feet were sticking up out of the river. And so, uh, we had the, somebody had made these prosthetic feet and what the crew I was working on, what we had to do was we had to sort of build this sort of rig, um, to attach these feet to with sort of a base. And then, um, we actually filmed it like in the spot where they found him. And so, uh, we had, you know, we built this adjustable rig um, 
in case, you know, so that we could change how much the feet stuck out of the water. And so they wouldn't go away in the current. And so, um, that was one thing I did on that, which was like a really very surreal kind of like hard day. Um, but you know, a lot of times on films, uh, special effects is just, um, you know, sometimes we do, uh, we'll, we will like, uh, like haze a room because everything looks better with a little bit of like fog, you know, like a fog machine. So that's the special effects department or, Sometimes we just wet streets because streets look better when they're wet and they reflect the light, you know, and, um, you know, like I was saying on the Hallmark movies, the special effects department does the snow. So, um, you know, anything dealing with water or fire or, uh, things like that. It's a real, it's a really interesting job because you never know what to expect and there's no like standard for anything. They're always just like throwing these crazy curveballs at you like like one thing we did on the emmett till show was um these these uh young boys um had to swim in this pond and we were filming in january and so the crew i was working on we had to basically heat a section of this pond so that these little boys could swim in it in january and and it was supposed to be like summertime so we had to build this frame and take this big tarp and then get these three pool heaters out there. And like, we're heating the water for like days to try to bring this, this water temperature up. So weird things like that, that there's, there's really like no precedence, you know, there's no like school you can go to, to learn. It's just like, you just have to figure it out. Uh, so it's a really interesting and challenging uh, position. How does working on projects like this, inform your process when you turn around and you're writing or you're directing for yourself? Um, I mean, I, I'm always learning something, um, every, and that was sort of why, you know, what made me get into film. I started as an actor. I did my first film at 12 and I'm 43 now. But, you know, even back then when I when I did my first film, I was always looking around, paying a, trying to pay attention to like what people were doing. And I was like, well, why are they putting the lights here? You know, why are they shooting a light at the back of my head? You know, what does that do? You know, like I was always like so curious about the whole process and and and, and just tried to absorb everything. So um, it does. I, I, you know, I'm I'm always learning things. Uh, that can that benefit me when I uh, when I make my own films. What was it you were in when you were twelve? Uh, it was this little short film called The Runaway, um, where I play this uh, I, I run away, I play this kid who runs away from home and gets picked up by a guy uh, on the street and he gets me hooked on drugs and then uh, takes me to a bar and, and sells me to a fella who takes me home and tries to have his way, have his way with me. Um, how do you get a part like that at, <laughs> at age 12? How do you get involved in, in making movies? Uh, I was doing children's theater and uh, somebody came to the theater. The director came to the theater and, and uh, you know, posted that he was trying to make a film and he was looking for actors to audition. And so I auditioned and got the part. At what point did you decide to start making films yourself? Um, 
I guess I, I, my friends and I tried to make one. Well, so after I did that film at, at 12, um, I quickly, I sort of lost interest for a while in acting and theater and film and focused on music. And so, you know, probably from, you know, between the ages of like 15 and uh, 28, I was just really focused on music, you know, as you know, playing in Pez and Bury the Living and um, all these other bands. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, being a tour, be a touring musician. And I thought I could uh, have a career at that, which is a really dumb thing to think. Um, but I remember, um, I remember at some point, you know, in the mid two thousands, I saw, I was at Otherlands and I saw something on the message board. It was like auditions for a film. And I was like, Whoa, you know, I thought I remembered, I, I used to really love acting. And, you know, the, the thing that's cool about it is it was something I could do by myself. I didn't have to like coordinate with four or five other knuckleheads to try to like make, <laughs> I say that in the best you know, um, with, with, uh, with love, but I, you know, I didn't have to coordinate with all these people to make something happen. I could go to an audition by myself. Um, and then, you know, if I got the part, you know, it was something I could do on my own. And, uh, so I got this part in this other little film and, um, one, it kind of fell in love with it again, you know? And, um, and it wasn't very long after that, that my friends and I, we tried to make a film in like 2005, 2006, we tried to make a feature and, um, that, you know, never really came out, but man, we had a lot of fun and maybe one day it'll come out. I just, I just got the tapes back after they were sort of tied up in a bad partnership for years. So, um, I don't know, maybe that movie will come out one day just for a laugh. So yeah, uh, I guess mid two thousands, I, you know, really got into the idea of making films. How is the indie music world and the indie film world? I, I'm curious just because, you know, I'm only a musician. So I'm curious about how, how they're different, how it's similar, and how your skills maybe carry over from one to the other. Um, you know, I just had a conversation. Me and Marv were talking about this the other night and that um, I learned so much like by being in Pez and from those dudes and basically from the like DIY ethic of doing things, um, you know, just the idea of like, if you want to do something, you just got to do it. You know, you can't, no one's going to like give you an opportunity. You have to make it happen. Um, and it's, it's really the same sort of thing, you know, um, you, you know, anybody that, you know, no one's going to like give you a, movie deal or whatever you just have to you know if you want to make movies you just have to make movies you know um and this it's the same with music you know um if you you know i remember like you know after i, I was sort of done like touring with the bands and i you know i would think i was like almost 30 and i considered like going to film school at that age you know and I was talking to Craig Brewer about it, and he gave me some of the best advice I've ever had. He said, man, don't go to film school. Just make films. And I was like, yeah, exactly. You know, 
um, why spend all this money and go into debt and learn, you know, to try to learn how to do all this stuff when you can just learn to do it by doing it. Um, so yeah, I sort of brought that sort of DIY ethic into, uh, making films and that has served me well. As far as distribution and opportunities for screenings and whatnot goes, would you say it's easier to get an independent film seen or an independent record heard? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. Um, the film festival scene is a real, uh, it's kind of a mess. Um, it's, it's one of my least favorite things. I love like go, when I get into a film festival, I love to go and I love to network and uh, it's amazing. But like film festivals cost so much money. Uh, they all, I mean, I, I spend thousands and thousands of dollars entering film festivals and I have more rejections. I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of rejections. Um. But so I guess, you know, maybe it's they're probably similar, you know, to try to get uh, I mean, I guess the difference is like you can enter a film festival with a film and sort of and if you sort of like win some awards um, and, and get some recognition, then, you know, maybe people will want to see it. Um, but I guess with like music, you know, I guess you just really have to like get out there and tour and. I don't know. Maybe they're equally, maybe it's, maybe it's, it's equal, uh, difficult to get people to listen to your stuff. Do you think that the Amazon prime platform that is, uh, allowing a lot more independent filmmakers to get their movies in front of faces, basically, do you think that's exciting or is that, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I would be thrilled to have something of mine up on, uh, up on Amazon. And, and then, you know, in knowing that I would like do the work and like trying to promote it as well as I could myself. Uh, but I do know people that have had their films on Amazon and nobody really cared, you know, or like it just didn't, nobody watched it, you know, like, um, for instance, um, you know, Patrick Cox, who was the singer for Bury the Living, uh, he wrote a series called Break Karate that was on Amazon. And the company who produced it, like, didn't put any money into advertising. So, like, nobody really saw it. Um, but it's really cool and it's out there. What's it called? It's called Break Karate. It's like kind of it's like a very like. Um, it's a it's a very like 80s uh type feel to it but it's like um everybody's like fighting style corresponds to the style of music that they listen to so the breakdancing kids like they fight with break karate uh but then they end up fighting like the metal guys like practice like muay talica and it's 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 totally ridiculous but super fun and you know um but yeah there was no sort of advertising budget and it just it doesn't when you're scrolling through Amazon, it doesn't just like pop up, you know, you'd have to like dig for it to find it. So how long have you been making movies under the best revenge pictures moniker? Um, I think about, I guess the first one uh, under best revenge was about eight years ago. Um, the short film slaughterhouse Phi, 
PHI uh, about a guy that um, his girlfriend gets assaulted by some frat guys. And so he goes in the frat house in the middle of the night and murders them all. You know, it's like a family film. Yeah. I actually watched, <laughs> I watched that one and I watched all of the, the shorts on your, on your YouTube channel. And I can't help noticing, I mean, to say nothing of the, of them mostly being fairly dark. I notice a recurring theme is death, but also people grappling with death. And I'm curious, where do you think, where, where does that come from? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I, my, I guess I fell in love with movies like through horror. And so, you know, that's sort of a genre that's, it's, um, it's dear to me. Um, but, you know, like I did make like I made the drama uh, Arrow of Light. And um, I don't know, you know, I guess like uh, for me, a story is interesting when the stakes are high and the stakes never get any higher than when there's death involved. I notice another recurring element in your movies is working with Krista Roten on yeah. the music. Yeah. What's what's what does she like to collaborate with on the music of those of those things? Man, um, yeah, I guess she has scored. Let's see. I guess four, at least four of of my films. Um, man, I just you know I love what she does. I, I just sort of give her. I just sort of let her go. You know, I just say, uh, you know, like maybe we'll have a conversation. And I'll and I'll sort of say like, well, this is kind of what I'm thinking in my head as I see this scene. Uh, but then she just kind of goes off to the lab, her and and Toby Vest, and uh, yeah, and they and they just sort of, you know, they'll record some stuff and then like send it to me, and I'm generally like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know, like there's not a lot of, um, it, you know, I, I just never really have a lot of budget to play with, so there's never there's never a lot of time to really, you know, go over everything with a fine tooth comb. I just sort of have to, and, and that's part of what I like about um, directing is, you know, I, I just sort of find like really talented people that I already like and respect what they do. And I bring them into the project and I sort of let them do their thing and and add their flavor to the project and uh so that's sort of the relation the working relationship that me and krista have have you ever been tempted to do your own music for something uh not really because i don't i don't really consider myself a musician i don't feel i never did feel like a musician uh, i got into music originally because uh i was a writer and i could write lyrics and then you know, so I ended up like the first band that I joined, I was the singer um, and I wasn't a very good singer, but I could write lyrics. And then from then, I just sort of had to learn how to pick up an instrument uh, just out of necessity. But I never felt good at it. It never uh, it never came naturally. Uh, but my experience in music does sort of help with film in the sense of that I do think about things with a sense of rhythm uh, because of, you know, in, in writing film, you know, the rhythm is important and the beats and the pauses. And um, 
so I do sort of think about things in in that in that way with with rhythm, you know. It really surprises me to hear you say that you never really felt like a good musician. I mean, I would say to the outsider, I mean, you're a pretty pretty solid bass player, man, and good songwriter. I would say that makes you a musician by all by any account. Yeah, but uh, it was always a struggle for me. I, I wasn't I wasn't very prolific, and um, you know, I really had to. Yeah, like really had to struggle to to get it out, and it, it doesn't come naturally, you know. Like, um, you know, you the, I'm you know, there's somebody like Ceylon who, I mean, that dude just can sit down and play a million songs for you like immediately, you know, like, and and he remembers like every song that he's ever written since he was like 14, and and for me it's like a real struggle to to you know put to put things together. Um, and, and I just, yeah, I just never felt good at it. It always felt like it was a, it was a slog. And, and I, I realized I felt like I was a better storyteller than I did a player, but I mean, I can, you know, I can like play along, you know, I can, you know, sit in and, and, you know, do the job just fine, but I was never a virtuoso or anything. Would you say that your musical aspirations are kind of over at this point and you're just, you're all in on making movies. Pretty much. Uh, I wouldn't mind, you know, playing in a, you know, I wouldn't mind like playing in a like hardcore band or something. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, you know, now it's, uh, at, at my age at 43, I just feel like, um, you know, I feel like those, I feel like I did the most that I was going to do with it. I don't think it'll ever get any better than, you know, it did when, you know, Pez and Barry the Living were touring and, um, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't see it getting, I don't see doing any better than I did. So I don't know. I think it's time to go for other things because I have so many other things that I want to do. I have movies to make and I have books I want to write and, other experiences that I want to experience time out before we get back to Christian Walker. I want to say thank you one more time to everyone who donated to the GoFundMe campaign. If you missed it and still want to support me and or back to the light, please visit my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash JD Rieger. Also be on the lookout later this week for the debut single by back to the light records artist joshua c travis which i played on and helped produce you'll be able to find it on spotify apple music or at joshuacravis.bandcamp.com it's called paper airplane and it comes out may 7th as always keep up with everything we're doing at backtothelight.net and now the ad
You've just heard the song We're Not Alone by Pez, featuring not me, but my guest, Christian Walker. Let's get back to our conversation. At what point do you think filmmaking really became your main main thing, main focus? Uh, probably in the, in the late 2000s. Um, I mean, I guess like the last tour that I went on was in 2006. And it wasn't long after that, that I really made the decision that I wanted to have a career in film and that, and really it was really, it wasn't until then that I really even knew that was an option. Um, and yeah, and, and I've, I mean, I do, I, I make most of my money working in film. So to some degree, I've been successful at that. You mentioned having a lot of movies and projects that you still need to get to. What can you tell me about some of these things that might be in the hopper more immediately? Um, I don't, I don't know immediately. Uh, I, I mean, I have feature length films that I have written. I have screenplays that are done and ready to go. And I, I send them out to screenplay competitions at film festivals. And so it's, it's really like trying to navigate, like, how do I do, how do I get this into some hands where, you know, either somebody wants to step up and and be a producer for me and help me, you know, raise the money to actually make one of these feature films. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's that, like I already, I have all these done, but then I have so many more like stories that I still need to write. And I, I have, um, several other screenplays in various, uh, stages of complete completion. And, you know, I, I need to complete those and, um, you know, I'm actually thinking about taking some of those screenplays and uh, converting them into novel form. And, you know, at the very least, I could, you know, self-publish the novel or, you know, try to get them published just so those stories are out there. Because uh, right now they just exist as these, you know, movies that no one will ever see, and you know, maybe, possibly, you know. And I, and I, and I would rather those stories, like, be out there and somewhere in the world so people could read them. Have you ever considered maybe table reading them as a podcast or a radio play kind of a thing? Hmm. Uh, not as a podcast. Uh, I've never considered that. Someone else I know who's a filmmaker and who's was facing a similar dilemma about not being able to have his film put, uh, made due to the pandemic just decided to hell with it. Let's just table read it and make it a podcast. And it was actually really neat. Really? Yeah. Chad uh, Barton, actually. You oh, probably okay. know him. Yeah, yeah. I do know Chad. Yeah. Um, I'll have to check that out. Are you still doing any acting or are you basically all behind the camera now? I, I will, uh, for fun. I don't pursue it like I used to. Uh, I used to, I, I was pursuing it pretty hard for a while. Um, but I don't, you know, once again, it was one of those things where, uh, when I, when I was directing a couple of the films that I directed, I worked with some actors that were like really good, uh, like a guy that was in both, uh, of a promise broken and arrow of light, um, Josh Sinkowitz, 
man, he, I mean, he was just like such an incredible actor. And once I worked with him, I was like, oh, this is what a real actor is. And, and then I just felt uh, I just didn't feel confident in my own abilities. I felt like I made a better director than I do an actor because I know how to talk to actors. I know how to get stuff out of them. I know how to ask them for what I want. Uh, but as an actor myself, I never felt very good at it either. Same with, it's kind of the same with music, you know, like I just never felt, you know, I felt sort of mediocre at it, you know. Well, maybe take me through, how do you approach, how do you coach an actor to get the performance that you want as a director? That's very, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, you really get a lot by like showing somebody their performance and, and like sort of pointing these things out. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, one of the films that I did, uh, I think when doing arrow of light, uh, one of my actors, he had, he had just shown up and we didn't have any time to rehearse anything. And he had this like really intense, um, scene where he like had to sort of cry and be sort of like breaking down, you know, and, and that's like very hard to do. And so without any able to rehearse it, I mean, we just kind of came in and he just did it, you know, but I got it on tape. And then after he was done, I sort of brought him and like had him watch. And I said, I said, you know, you're, you know, you're doing this thing with your mouth, you know, like you're, um, you know, I mean, the thing about acting is if you, you know, you can tell when somebody's trying to act, <laughs> you know, like if you can tell somebody's trying to act, then it's not, uh, it doesn't work, you know, they have to like really be in it, you know. So I was able to like show this guy, like, I oh, see this thing that you're do, you're, you're sort of affecting this little thing, and that's not work, you know, it's not working, you know. And so, like, kind of pull that back, and I don't know, I was able to sort of like tweak little things that he was doing and then sent him in to do it again. And, um, you know, by the final, by the final time, whatever made it on, onto the, into the movie, you know, like, uh, was so much better than, you know, what he had done before. So I was able to sort of rein him in. I feel a little bit bad for always comparing, you know, music and film, but which microscope do you think is more intense, the camera microscope or the studio microscope hmm wow uh you know the thing about film though uh, the thing about film and the, and the reason why i love film is i've always felt like it's sort of the highest form a, a higher form of art because it encompasses all the other ones and that was uh, the appeal to film for me because you know when i write a film you know it appeals to me as a writer and then making the film, you know, like working with the music appeals to me as a musician and, and working with the actors appeals to the, the acting side of me. And, and, uh, and you know, doing the sets, um, you know, appeals to my sense of design. Um, and so it's, it's all these things in one. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know if that I, I don't know if like the. Uh, I, I don't know how to answer the microscope question <laughs> because I, I, because I tend to enjoy art that is, that is flawed, um, both in music and film. 
because I tend to enjoy things more if I know that they've been done with some heart and some earnestness as opposed to, uh, you know, you can have like, you can have a technically perfect song that just doesn't have any soul. It doesn't have any life to it. You know, like everyone, all the notes are there and it sounds great, but it's just, you know, um, and then you can have, just have, um, you can have a song that's like, man, there's mistakes all through it and there's flubs, but like, you can really tell that like somebody meant that, you know, I mean, that was my attraction to punk rock. You know, it was, it was more heart than it was, um, you know, tech technicality and everything. Well, I guess we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about Pez. Um, I was listening to the 2018 record again, more than you can give us. And I was, that's a, that's a really great record. I I'm, I'm actually really happy with it. I think it, uh, it took me a while. It took some distance, uh, from it for me to really appreciate it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I'm, I'm really happy with it. How long did it take you guys to, to crank that one out? <laughs> oh man, this is part of what, uh, you know, me and Marv were talking about this the other day. And, and one of the reasons why it was, it was sort of easier for me to step away from the band was because, I mean, I don't know how many years it took to like write that batch of songs, but it took several years. And then, um, and we recorded it. And then I think that I think the record came out like six or seven years later. And, uh, I mean, I kind of, you know, like if I'm going to put, if I'm, you know, if I want to do an art project, like I want it to get out there and I would rather it get out there with mistakes and flubs and warts and all than just, you know, go over everything with a fine tooth comb to the point of insanity but then, you know, it takes six years to come out, you know. You know, what's interesting to me about that is that my experience in Pez was so wildly different from that. Like I joined the band and then like before I knew it, we were writing these songs and then we were in the studio and we were touring like crazy. It was just like snap, 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 you know, no thinking about it, no laboring over decisions. How when did that change? Uh, it changed when. Well, I mean, you know, the way you guys did it now, of course, you do. I mean, you know, I know that there was laboring over every little deedly D and, you know, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, no, I don't think that deedly D should go there. I think the deedly D should go right before the break. And then, uh, you know, this and that, you know, like there was a lot of that, um, which was, you know, which I. I, I was, I'm fine with that, but the way that y'all did that, you know, back then Pez would, you know, get a batch of songs and then like go to the studio and like you have a week in the studio. So you got to get this album done in a week or however long you have. And I think that's a much better process. Um, but we started practicing at Jason Potter's studio in 19... 19- yeah, late 1999, I guess, when I when I rejoined the band. And, um, you know, eventually Jason moved away and we sort of got control of the studio. And when that happened, 
Ceylon bought, uh, you know, a 24 track tape machine and this huge board and all this stuff so that we could, you know, record our own stuff. And then that, that was the problem. Just like having unlimited time and unlimited options to tinker and mess and, and screw with, uh, you know, it, when you have those unlimited options and unlimited time, then you don't get anything done. You just, you know, people can, some people can just tinker with it for forever. And I sort of, uh, I sort of liked the older way of doing it, of just get a batch of songs, practice them as well as you can go in the studio for a week and get it done. I sort of wonder too, the record that I played on is essentially a Marvin dominated record. And, you know, I played in a very Marvin dominated era of the band, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if maybe the more democratic era that existed after that maybe bogged the band down a little bit. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know. And I, and I do, it is, it is interesting that like, that is a, is a much more Marv heavy record. And I don't really remember how that came about. Yeah. Um, there's only like one or two Ceylon songs on the record. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is, which is interesting. And because, I mean, that's, you know, one of the things that I love about the record before that one is that, you know, like when Joey was in the band and it's sort of equal, uh, Marvin Ceylon and Joey songs. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of variety in there. Um, although I do think, you know, the record that you played on warmth is a great record. Uh, I, I really love that record, but yeah, I, I feel like it could have used a little bit more, you know, I always hated like that, the, the other Ceylon song that never made it on the record that you guys recorded, I feel like should have been on it. Crucifixion. Oh man. I said that at the time till I was blue in the face, but I couldn't, nobody else was having it. Yeah. I hate that whole, like, no, let's put this on a B side of a single, like, that never even came out, did it? No, it never came out. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a fat, it was a Ceylon sung song. It was a faster song. Uh, it would have, it, 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 you know, the record would have benefited from, you know, that sort of, because for the most part, the record's kind of mid tempo and it's mid tempo Marvy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, that's what we're going to start calling him around the office. <laughs> Mid-tempo Marvy. Well, I, I would be remiss since I live in Chicago if I didn't ask you to tell me some stories about touring with Wesley Willis. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> man, that's something that, that, that's something that affects me to this day. I mean, that's, that's one of the most affecting things that uh, experiences in my life. And, you know, for one of the big things is that I, I always remember and I always keep in mind that, like, I don't know anybody else that was dealt a worse hand of cards than Wes. You know, I mean, he grew up in Cabrini Green. Um, you know, I think there was some mental illness in his family, you know, grew up really poor. Um, and then when he was... Uh, when he was a teenager, he was like saving up money to move out. And his mom's boyfriend robbed him at gunpoint. 
And that's what triggered his schizophrenia. And, um, you know, by all, uh, you know, in, in our culture, in our society, you know, you know, most, you know, Wes would have been living on the streets, you know, he would have been just another mentally ill homeless person that had fallen through the cracks. But, you know, just through the, through this, this music that he had, um, you know, and, and people loved him and, you know, there was a lot of struggle with, you know, I remember like, you know, a lot of people, people would like confront us sometimes after shows and say like, you know, everybody's like making fun of him and this is sort of wrong. Like he's being exploited. And we were just like, really? No. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and we were just like, no, like this is, you know, this is this guy's like escape and, and his way out. And, you know, it's his and, dream. And, and it, it's his dream. And, uh, you know, one of my, one of my favorite West stories was told to us by after we toured with him, uh, he ended up getting sort of a full-time like manager, uh, this guy, you know, and they, and they bought a bus. And so he had his own bus to ride around in and his man. And, you know, what he got Wes on like a diet and Wes like lost like over 200 pounds, but they, they came to Memphis and they went to Graceland. Wes wanted to see Graceland. And so they were on the section of the tour where they're passing like Elvis's gold records on the wall. And um, apparently Wes was just like staring at those gold records. And then he goes, we got to go. I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I mean, he was a, he was a rock star, you know, in his, in his own mind, you know, and, and therefore he was, and, I mean, man, such a great, like, artist, you know, his paintings are, were amazing, and, um, man, I really just, you know, I just really, like, cherish that experience, and, and, uh, yeah, man, I wish that guy was still around, wish he was still doing it. You said he eventually got his own bus, but at the time you were with him, he, the deal was he would find other bands that had their own vans and just ride with yeah, you guys that, yeah that was the deal it was like we got to tour with him but we had to basically like take care of him and be his tour manager and he was riding in the pez van in the front seat uh all 450 pounds of him <laughs> what what was it like to just spend that much time with him in pr close proximity what i mean did did he want to be in charge of the radio uh, did he, you know, did you, I under, somebody told me that he, you guys had to do a lot of bathroom breaks or something. Uh, no, he, uh, he finally, uh, we, you know, I guess like we taught him how to, how to pee in a bottle. <laughs> and, and so, of you course know, because, you did. well, you know, oh, man, that was always one of my biggest pet peeves on tour was like bottles of piss everywhere like uh i i, I never it. got into that system i know that that's like ceylon's thing but i'm not i never could really be a part of it i would i would make him i would make i'd be like guys pull over yeah yeah well um you know they taught wesley to pee in a bottle and wes you know you'd be like watching him and he'd be all scared because you'd see him like go to dump it out the window and 
you know, he never spilled it. He always, he always did it really well, but we were always like, Oh my God, it's just going to spill and just blow back in here on all of us. Um, but you know, he was just, you know, he was just like a big, like child, you know, but, but very sweet, you know, and, but, but very tormented. Um, he would, uh, he would listen to his headphones at like full volume all the time just to like drown out the voices in his head. And then, you know, he, so he'd be rocking out to something and then he would like whip his headphones off and he'd look at us and he'd say, you know, this demon just called me a bum, a jerk and an asshole. And we'd have to be like, well, Wes, uh, you're not a fucking bum. You know, you're, you know, you're not, you're not eating out of the trash, you know, like you're not a jerk. We love, we love you, Wes. So tell that demon to, you know, uh, suck a cheetah's dick and, and Wes would be like, yeah. And then he'd like put his headphones back on and listen for a while. And at, at least once a day he had, he kind of had a, like a meltdown. Like if he was tired, um, you know, where he would, he would have an outburst. He would start screaming, you know, he'd be like, quit fucking with me demon, you know? And, uh, but it was a lot of, you know, just sort of having to work with him. And, you know, you couldn't tell him that, the demons weren't there. You just had to tell him, like, tell those demons to fuck off because to him, they were very real. What kind of reactions would you guys get from his crowd? Um, I thought, I mean, that was a pretty good tour. Uh, I think we, I think we got good reactions from his crowd. I think his crowd was very, it was the same. I mean, it was all, it was sort of, you know, rooted in the punk scene. So, um, yeah, I think that that was a really good tour for us. What's the status of the band now? Is it officially on hiatus? Uh, we were supposed to play a 30th anniversary show last year and then COVID happened. So that, uh, so we didn't do that, but you know, we put out a new song and, and, a, I sort of cut a music video together out of a bunch of footage from years past. I remember. And, and um, but we might play uh, a show this year. We might play something in Birmingham this summer, like sort of an outdoor festival thing. Um, but, you know, not a lot. I mean. And honestly, like even towards the end of the band, I, I was kind of like, I, you know, I kind of wanted to like do what like Snow Globe does, you know, it's like play once a year. Like if you're only going to play because we were playing once a month in Memphis and like, you know, it was, we were playing even shows that were like supposed to be quote unquote good shows. I mean, if there was 20 people there, that'd be great. So, you know, if, if a band is only going to play its hometown, then play once or twice a year, you know? Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to do towards the end. And, and sort of make it count, you know, then it's an event, you know, because people, you know, I mean, probably even when you were in the band, people were like, oh, that band's been around forever. I've seen, it a, mil seen them a million times. Um, and especially now. Uh, so if you, you know, I, I'd rather like make a, an event out of it and, and actually like make people miss us than just oversaturating people with our with our band. Well, if anyone wants to hear more discussion about Pez, I encourage them wholeheartedly to check out your podcast, Tourer Stories. 
we did we did the whole deal on your show already. How how long have you been doing that podcast? Uh, right around two years, and it's kind of hard to do because both Jared and I work in the film industry, and so uh, it's hard. I, I mean, I've been in and out of town for you know basically this whole year, so it's really hard to find you know times when we're both in town and not working but i mean it's it does still exist and and we do plan on doing more of them as soon as we can cool well uh you can definitely still find my episode out there and there are lots of other good ones i recommend the jeremy stanfield episode that's a fun one that was a good one well christian is there some place that you want to refer people to check up on updates on your film work updates on music work both either uh, yeah, I mean, all my film stuff is at uh, bestrevengepictures.com, and there you can see my uh, all my short narrative films and all of the music videos that I've directed and, uh, and all that. And then, you know, you can find me on Instagram at bestrevenge, and that's, that's where people can find me. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's the show. Thank you to Christian Walker. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening. For music, news, and episode archives, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, take care, y'all. of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.